0: The word of our Lord from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, of your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what are the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us this morning, that you would give us the faith to follow you and to trust you, that you would help us to live um, that life to which you call us. In your spirit and in the name of your son Jesus, amen. The ascension of Jesus brings together and brings to mind a number of different biblical concepts, ideas, or realities for us. We think when we think of the ascension of Jesus, we think of Jesus' glory at the Father's right hand because, after all, that's where he ascended. He ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, sitting at the seat of honor and power in heaven as our advocate. We think of Jesus as the great high priest interceding for us, his church, for numerous times in the New Testament epistles that's exactly what we're told that he is there at the Father's right hand he has ascended so that he can make intercession for us so that he can serve as our high priest that's the whole um, the whole image and and motif of, of the book of Hebrews is about Christ as our high priest and our advocate who is interceding for us who's entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf who sits at the Father's right hand as our priest. We think, I think rightly, of the church. Christ being the head of the body. The church being the temple of the Holy Spirit where His presence dwells among us and in us as His people. We think of the exalted and powerful name of Jesus, and that's what paul is is constantly making reference to when he thinks of the ascended Lord, that he has been given the name that is above all names. He says it here in his epistle to the Ephesians, and he says it in a in a passage we're even more familiar with typically um, in Philippians chapter two, when he said that because Christ emptied himself of all but love and and became like us and "...submitted himself to the Father, even to the point of death, even death on the cross, that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the Father's glory." And so with Paul, when we think of the exalted Jesus, when we think of our Lord who has ascended... Into heaven, we think of his great name, his exalted and powerful name. And of course, when we think of the name of Jesus, we often think of prayer. We think of praying in his name, and we typically end our prayers in the name of Jesus or in the name of your son we pray. That's how Jesus taught us and taught his disciples to pray in his name. Bearing his name before the Father. And so thinking of the name of Jesus in connection to the ascension, we often think of prayer. We think of our prayers to God the Father in Jesus' name. And if we are thinking biblically, then we will think also of his prayers in our behalf. For after all, he is our priest. He is our intercessor. He He is our advocate at the Father's right hand interceding for us, praying for us, beseeching the Father for our needs. Jesus, as He ascended to the Father's right hand, brought to the attention and brought together the idea not just of His exaltation and the greatness of His name, but also the reality of the day that would come in just ten days beyond the ascension. Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who makes His temple holy. The Lord who is holy and the Lord who makes holy. The temple of His church and the temple of our hearts He came to make holy. All of these ideas and all of these concepts, all of these realities are coming together in the ascension of Jesus. It's not just an addendum at the end of His life, death, and resurrection. As He enters into the presence of heaven, as He enters into the chambers of His Father, He enters in as redeemed humanity come to intercede for us, calling us to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, calling us to wait for God's promise to His people, the promise that He would come and live in our hearts by faith. Paul's epistles always begin with doctrine and move from doctrine on into behavior. You might think of it as him beginning with theology and moving from theology into ethics or him starting with Christian faith or Christian belief and moving on into Christian life and Christian practice. But that's the way Paul shapes all of his epistles. This is what God has done in your behalf now how shall we then as His people live? He begins with God's initiation, the work of grace, and He moves into our cooperation, the work of faith and faithfulness, responding to Him, responding appropriately to His goodness to us, which He has initiated in our behalf and toward us. Interestingly, Paul begins, he both begins and ends his development of Christian doctrine, of of theology, here in his epistle to the Ephesians, with prayer. He starts his epistle with prayer, and then there at that midway, as he's beginning to move into the practical day-in and day-out living of Christian life, he offers another prayer. Notice that unlike we tend to do, he doesn't separate the two. He doesn't separate prayer and theology. He doesn't separate our interaction with God and correct doctrine of what God has done in our behalf. We often unintentionally build a wall of separation between communication about God and communication with God. The effect of what Paul does, however, goes really two ways. Paul's understanding of God and what God has done provides the framework for his communication with God and his longing for what God might do in, among, and through his people. Because of what God has done, Paul is motivated to pray. Paul is motivated to get to work In the work of God. And so he prays as he builds and shapes his theology. But also, Paul's relationship and communication with God shapes his understanding of who God is, what God's character is like, what God desires for his people. Why does Paul pray as he does? Notice these two prayers that we've read together this morning, in Ephesians 1 and then in Ephesians 3. These prayers are huge prayers. They're they're big. They're obviously big. They're, They're filled with theological jargon. They're filled with images of resurrection. They're filled with the great things that God is able to do among His people, that He wants to do among His people. He even says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly hyperbole upon hyperbole more than we can imagine or think or more than we can ask or think so what God is able to do among us what God is able to do in us is more than we can even imagine Paul's prayers are big they're huge and Paul prays this way because of what he details to some extent in chapter 4 Jesus, who was raised from the dead, has ascended to the Father's right hand and is now interceding for his body, the church, over whom he is head. And so it's because of the ascension of Jesus, because of the resurrected Lord who is pleading for us and in our behalf that Paul has the audacity and the gumption to pray these huge monumental prayers for his people. Paul is joining in on the work of Jesus for his people, the church. Paul sees himself as coming alongside Jesus and what Jesus is doing in their behalf. And Paul rolls up his sleeves, as it were, and says, let me be a part of this. Let me pray as you're praying, Jesus. Let me take part in what you're doing Paul prays for them precisely because Jesus prays for them. As a good disciple, he's following Jesus' lead. That's what a disciple is always supposed to be doing. Doing what his master, doing what his rabbi, his teacher is doing. So Paul sees Jesus praying. Paul has an image of Christ ascended to the Father's right hand and pleading for his church. And so Paul... Pleads along with him. That being so, we probably want to take a look at what exactly Paul is praying. Just moving our way through these two prayers in chapter 1 and chapter 3. Notice that Paul prays that they might know the Father rightly. In his book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. C.S. Lewis began with a prayer, and he said, May it be the real I who speaks, and may it be the real thou that I speak to. Lewis begins by saying, I want to be transparent before you, God. I don't want to be hiding. I don't want to be guarding. May it be the real I who speaks. But also, I want to pray to you as you really are, as you truly are. I want to know you rightly. You're the one to whom I'm praying. You're the one to whom I'm lifting my burdens. You're the one in whom I'm trusting. I want to make sure that I'm trusting the one true God and The one who's revealed himself in his son Jesus. I don't want to be trusting in just a figment of my imagination. I don't want to be trusting in a God who can't bear the weight of my burdens. And so may it be the real I who speaks. And may it be the real thou that I speak to. It's important that we know who we're dealing with. Who we're worshiping. Who's called us to himself. Who saved us from sin and brought us into his... Family. And so Paul says that he wants the Ephesian believers to to know God the Father rightly. I do not cease to give thanks, making mention of you in our prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. He wants us to to have eyes that are wide open and that are clear as we look at the Father. That we might know Him rightly. And He prays this so that they might then know, and He enumerates three things for them. So that they might know the hope they have in being called by the Father, that they might know the joy that God the Father finds in his people. the way the text reads that we, we were tempted to get lost in, in what he's saying because he says that you might know what is the hope of his calling, that's fairly clear enough. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And typically, if you're like me, you think, okay, Paul here is talking about what I'm getting out of this. But that's not what Paul has in mind. He has in mind what God the Father sees he's getting out of this. What are the riches of the glory of his, the Father's inheritance in the saints, in the people? Paul wants them to know the hope that they have in being called by Him, but he wants them also to know the joy that God the Father finds in His people. He delights in you. He delights in us. As crazy as that sounds, as impossible as that sounds, He finds delight and joy. He sees in in us an inheritance. Something to bring fulfillment. Something to bring blessing. So Paul prays, I want you to know the Father rightly so that you might know the hope of being called by Him, so that you might know the joy that the Father finds in His people, and so that you might know the power of the resurrection which is at work in His people. When Paul talks about the work of Jesus in his church. He does often talk about the cross. He does often talk about the death of Jesus in our behalf. But Paul always goes a step further than just what Christ has done for us and begins talking about what God has done in us and is doing in us through the resurrection life, through the fact that Christ rose from the dead. And Paul tells us that There's a power at work in us that is able to raise the dead. The power at work in us is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that power is at work in the people of God. What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in christ when he raised him from the dead and then seated him at his right hand again that image of of the ascended lord at the father's right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come and then he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is as big as Jesus' prayer for his people. To do the unimaginable. To do the unthinkable. Paul then moves on as he continues building... His theology of what God has done in their behalf. And he offers yet another prayer then in chapter 3, in which he prays that the Holy Spirit will strengthen their hearts, the inner man, so that Jesus can fully take up residence in them. They will therefore become fixed in the great love that God has for them, rooted and built up, fixed. In his great love for them, and not only fixed in his love, but also transfixed on just how amazing this idea that God loves us so much is I love the 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 beautiful conundrum that that Paul creates by saying that his prayer for, his, for, for the Ephesians his prayer for the church is that they would begin to know what can't be known he even starts giving dimensions to it that you would know the height, the depth, the width, the length he goes into all those spatial images to bring to their mind something that he then says surpasses knowledge I want you to know what can't be known. I want you to understand what can't really be understood. I want you to experience something that can never be fully and utterly and exhaustibly experienced. Because it's something that just keeps on going. It's something that keeps on experiencing. The love of Jesus is a love that keeps on loving. It's beyond comprehension. It's beyond imagination. And Paul says that his prayer is that the Holy Spirit would strengthen their hearts so that Jesus can take up His full residence, so that He can have His, his complete way with the Ephesians and with us. So that they would be rooted and built up so that they would be fixed in that great love that God has and begin to become transfixed on it, to be captivated, to be swept up, to be blown away. There are some things we ought to know this morning as we approach the table We ought to know that God's love is incomprehensible. It is beyond comprehension. It's not to be understood. It's to be received and shared. Communion reminds us of this love. For Jesus tells us take and eat. He does not tell us take and understand. Our desire, our longing, and our prayer should be that we would be swept up in That we would be captivated by and filled with the love of Christ. Because everything falls before the love of Jesus. It is the thing that matters most. And His love is beyond comprehension. It's beyond explanation. It's beyond understanding. It's inexhaustible. And it's, it's beyond understanding... And comprehension and imagination, not just because of how big it is. It is huge. It's 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 world shaking, but also because it doesn't make sense. He loves what's unlovely. He loves what has rejected him and run from him. Another thing we ought to know this morning is that God's not through with you. I know it sounds cliche and it sounds typically like an excuse that, hey, God's not done with me, you know. But in reality, this idea that God's not through with you, it's actually dauntingly huge and unimaginably hopeful to us. This is good news that God is not through. He's not given up. He's not quit. His work in us is bigger. It's more thorough. It's it's more life-infusing than we have imagined. And He's not done. When Jesus said, it is finished, He was not talking about the work that He has to do in you and in me. And I think if we're if we look at ourselves rightly, then we recognize that, yeah, he's not through. There's lots of work yet to be done. But that opens a door to something else that we ought to know this morning. As long as there's breath, there's hope. Have you ever felt like there's no hope? Like your situation's closing in on you and there's nowhere to turn? Perhaps like you've made too big of a mess to even know what to do about it. I think we've all been there, and I know that some of us are there right now. We feel like we're suffocating in despair. Maybe even depression. You see, too often we think that Christian hope is just about what happens when we die. What's next? Is there anything beyond this life? But no, Christian hope is... It's not really about escaping this world and its troubles. It's about the reality that this world can be transformed. It can be changed. That its troubles can be met with and redeemed by the grace of Jesus. Our hope is not somewhere else. Somewhere out yonder. Somewhere that we haven't yet gotten to. Our hope is in Him. And in Him alone. You see, we're always searching and running, possibly even frozen still sometimes, not knowing what to do. But we're always looking for our hope, when in reality, our hope is looking for us. Our hope comes to us. In the midst of searching, in the midst of running, That's when our hope comes. When we've been frozen still, not knowing what to do, that's when hope arrives. Because it comes in the midst of our difficulties, right in the middle of our jacked up situations. And right in the middle of the messes that we've made. And sometimes all I can do is wait. Jesus said, "Tarry in Jerusalem because the Father made you a promise and I'm about to fulfill it. But you have to stop running. You have to stop searching. You have to stop, really stop even being frozen still because this idea of waiting is not about a passive do-nothingness. John Wesley encouraged his people to wait in the means of grace. As you wait for God to do a work in you, you wait faithfully. You wait practicing. You wait doing those things you know to be doing. You know, when you don't know what to do, you do what you know to do. If there were only three things I could tell you that we need to do more than anything, and if I knew that we would actually do them by saying it, you probably know exactly what I would say. I would tell you first, read your Bible daily. Not just stuff about the Bible, but the Bible itself. Feast on His Word as you wait. And I would tell you secondly, pray daily. And not just pray daily, but pray honestly. Pray daily and honestly. Pour your heart out. Because it's Jesus whose body was broken for us and whose blood was shed for us, who meets us in the midst of our brokenness in the midst of our shedding of tears. And so as we read, as we feast, we ought to be moved to pray honestly. God's not... I want to be careful in how I say this, but there's no real careful way to say it other than to just try to get lost in explanation, but I don't think God is put off by our honesty before him in our sharing how we're feeling and our and I know, you know, you can get so lost in how you're feeling that you never get onto anything substantive, but God desires us to be honest before Him, to, to pray frankly, to pour out our hearts. That's what you see the psalmist doing, and sometimes it gets nasty. Sometimes it gets offensive and bloody and not really all that Holy. And I would tell you thirdly, come to church weekly. Not always, but often we make excuses when there really often are none. We need this. We need community. We need fellowship. We need the challenge of others. We need to hear from others. To be reminded by others that God loves us. To be reminded by others that He expects us He expects something of us. We need the challenge of living in Christian community. And we don't get that when we're just never really around it all that much. There are many other things that would help as we wait for God to do His work in us. But these together I think are a good place to start. This is my prayer for us. That we would trust God to do these enormous and monumental things that Paul trusts God to do in the Ephesians. That we would be bathed in the prayers of Jesus in our behalf. And so as we gather at the table, as we prepare to commune with one another and truly to commune with God at His table for His meal, let's prepare our hearts and let's ask the Lord to search us ask His Spirit to make us ready to come to the table and to feast. Father, we pray.